So, Ryan, thanks for doing this. Um, I'm glad that we're here together and we're going to discuss uh, crime and uh, what, what's criminology. So, um, Ryan, f the first question I'm going to ask you, could you please define what is crime? Okay. So that, that's actually a harder question uh, than you think, because uh, mm. when we think about modern day crime, there's a politicality to it, right? That there's a state or there's some sort of government agency. Typically, they have monopoly over the use of you know, deadly force, though in the United States, we do have gun rights. And uh, there's some sort of code. So there's uh, a legislation that passed, something's defined as a crime, and then that allows agents of social control, formal agents, such as the police, to then arrest someone. And one of the challenges when we look at crime is, is that because of this kind of politicality of it, we don't necessarily have crime in the same way in like a hunting gathering society. It's like a very simple type of society. Uh, crime and norms are more or less the same thing because they don't have this kind of state. Uh, but when we think today, there is this separation between norms and crime, with crime being something that's legislated and that norms are something that kind of bubbles up, they can bubble up spontaneously in situations like when you develop kind of a culture amongst friends, for example, or uh, they're transmitted from generation to generation through socialization. And so uh, crime in modern society is, is overlaps to some degree with, uh, say, deviance or other type of violations of norms. But not all crimes are deviant and not all forms of deviance are crimes. And so it, it can get kind of complicated to try to tease out what's what. What, what do you mean by deviant? So, so um, criminology since the 40s had this kind of branch that studied deviance. And what we mean by deviance is just a violation of some sort of normative standard in some way. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, like if you're young and your mom gave you a dirty look when you did something that she didn't want you to do that was wrong, that would be a deviant act. And she gave you the dirty look to try to control you, to, to get you to stop doing what you were doing. Okay, and so you also said that we 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 used to follow in hunter gatherer society normatives, uh, normative um, normative understandings of the world. Would would that be the right thing to say? Well, in terms of morality, because you don't have a state, these societies are very simple. You know, they're they're just yeah. bands of people, maybe thirty to a hundred or so, and uh, they don't have formal institutions in the same way that we do. And so crime, which is a formal kind of thing, uh, they, they just simply don't have. And so you, it, that for them, crime is synonymous with taboo and, and with just deviance in general, violation of some sort of norm. Uh, crime, as we kind of think about it today, is really just tied to politics in some way. There has to be a state. It has to be a state. Okay. So, um, but uh, still, I, I want to ask you this. Why do you think certain actions are considered deviants, a deviant or bad? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's a, a there's less theoretical work on this, though there is a bit of it. Uh, when, when we talk about deviants, one of the first questions, much like crime, is you got to ask, why is something defined as deviant in the first place? So mm -hmm. if we think about, uh, you know, even like table manners, for example, you, you have all these things you're supposed to do in terms of your fork and that kind of stuff, where things are supposed to be set, how you're supposed to eat. Uh, but the, these are just norms, right? No one's going to bust down the door and arrest someone for using the salad, or salad fork you know, on the wrong thing. 
but the, the question then is how, does, how do these things pop up that then have some sort of control? Uh, one kind of approach is like the work of W.I. Thomas, where he argues that norms are at least functional at first. So if you get a gr group of people together, you naturally start developing norms to regulate the kind of behavior of the group and, and get cohesive in some way. Uh, we tend to form norms that regulate body behaviors or body functions. Uh, so uh, like if you go to the bathroom, uh, reproduction, all those types of things are things that we have norms over in some way, and only some of them might actually pair with some sort of crime as well. Uh, so they're typically seen as a, at least initially functional for a group, but then over time as they become institutionalized, they might not fulfill that same function in the same way. Uh, so at that point, they kind of take on a life of their own. Yeah, they, they kind of become the a kind of a relic of the past. Yeah, yeah, an imprinting kind of. Yeah, and... So, um, and also there are certain cultures who consider certain actions deviant, certain actions. For example, uh, alcohol uh, is, mm -hmm. is a deviant, uh, deviant thing, I would say. If you drink uh, alcohol, then you're considered a bad person in the, uh, in the Islamic world. Uh, mm -hmm. But in the Western world, it's not the case. Uh, yeah. Why such differences occur? And, and then also on, on that uh, understanding of the world, like, for example, uh, Eastern world, let's say Islamic world, mm -hmm. Arabian world, and now there are laws based on that, uh, on alcohol, and you should drink alcohol, you should not drink alcohol. So mm -hmm. why such kind of differences occur in the first place? Yeah, well, not having you know studied the history of alcohol, for example, it, I, I could just be very general and probably what it looked like. Sure. Uh, but um, when, you, when you think about all of these different... Uh, countries, areas with different rules on alcohol, they all had their own unique kind of socio-historical evolutionary path that they followed. And somewhere along that path, something happened with alcohol that they thought it wasn't good, we needed to ban it, and uh, then if it became part of religion, institutionalized in that way, you got a, an added reason uh, to not do it because you're being socialized into this religious value system, so it becomes coterminous with religion. Uh, in the United States, you know, we had the temperance movement and uh, uh, a bunch of Christian women were, uh, were rebelled kind of against alcohol because at the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s, we had massive industrialization going on. Uh, spirits had been invented like whiskey and that kind of stuff uh, earlier. And, and there was all these kind of men uh, that were looking for work and that kind of stuff around that, that did a lot of drinking. You had a lot of men that would get drunk and leave their families and that kind of stuff. And so they saw alcohol as creating a social problem that then they uh, maneuvered, uh, got support eventually for the amendment, got it passed. And so in that particular case, you can see how a norm gets turned into a crime or get uh, through this kind of process of what Howie Becker called moral entrepreneurs, uh, people that are creating new norms, but then you got to get them institutionalized with the state. And so once the state accepts, or once it's present in the state in the form of some sort of law, then you have, uh, the agents of social control, like the police that can enforce it. So when you're dealing just with a norm, typically you don't have a formal person charged with enforcing it. You know, maybe you just informally do it with your friend or your parents. But for things like alcohol, when they get codified into the law in this way, then the, the key thing is, is that the, 
the power of the state can then regulate sales. You know, it can it can regulate times. Like in the United States, there's certain counties that are dry counties that they don't serve it, and then people have to yeah. drive a county away to get their alcohol. So there's like a shop, you know, on the highway just right next to the border. Uh, so you know, generally that generally when some sort of something becomes deviant, it, it's practical. It's created some sort of harm in a group that threatened its stability. And then depending on how complex the society is, it, it may eventually get to be uh, codified in law. So is there any difference between something that's morally wrong and, and something that's just deviant? Uh, no, no, because uh, what, you, what you run into here is this challenge of what, what are morals. And yeah. uh, I, I'm not a philosopher and I haven't, you know, uh, taken courses in ethics or those types of things. But from a sociological standpoint, we, we don't really question the metaphysical essence, you know, of those types of things. What we do is just look at people's behavior and see what they're doing. Uh, so, no, sorry, I lost track. What was the original question? The, like, what's the difference between morals and normal oh, okay. actions? Yeah, are, yeah. They, are they the same thing? Yeah, they, they are the same thing. Morals and norms are coterminous. Now, people might try to, like in, in law, there's a distinction between things that are malinsay and malaprohibita. And malinsay is wrong in its nature, malaprohibita wrong because it's uh, uh, just the state bars it or something. And so when you, you kind of look at morality in that way, uh, then you can say that maybe there are certain things like homicide, rape, uh, sexual assault, those types of things that uh, are tend to be defined through a moral lens more than kind of a tame or normative lens. But even those types of acts, right, can be incredibly uh, destructive to a group. So if you think about, you know, if, if you had this kind of group and uh, you didn't have morals against homicide, what's to prevent people from killing one another? That, that group's going to fall apart pretty quickly, right? That if, if it becomes yeah. this kind of util utilitarian war of everyone against everyone, there isn't going to be much cohesion within that group for very long. And for humans, that's very detrimental because we're a social species that need other people to survive. So as, as we're talking about human species, just you brought the, the term species, uh, do you think other uh, species, other species, any species, species do do they have uh, any normative um, i don't know no, or morals or normative uh, things that are considered good or bad or do they have something like that that we have you, you know i that that i don't know i mean if you think that there, there's all these studies that you know show mild technology use in different species and so like uh, birds might drop nuts on a street so that the cars will crush them and they can get the, the seeds out. And so we see some sort of complex, uh, or not really complex, but simple tool like usage in animals. When it comes to morality, the difficulty is, is how we know about morals typically is through verbalizations, right? People talking in symbolic systems. And whereas animals lack that capacity, even if they had some sort of mental capacity to view something as right or wrong, how would we know, right? How, how would we be able to get it out of them? Uh, I would suspect that in social species uh, that, that have high cognitive functioning, like great apes and those types of things, I would imagine that there's some type of normativity, uh, at least the capacity for it, how, how deep it is, I don't know. So, um, so as, as we clearly have understood that 
crime is something that is legislated by an authority. Uh, usually mm-hmm. it's a government. And morals are something that are not legislated, but they're considered bad for the survival of a certain group. Now, yeah, in, in, yeah they yeah. tend to be. Tend to be, okay. So in our society right now, as we're living, you and I, we're, we're living in a society that's, that's basically legislated by a government. Now, mm-hmm. if we, we do something that is not legislated as a crime, but it is considered morally wrong, can, is there any, is there any uh, example that has happened, uh, or uh, yeah, example that has happened in the past, uh, someone did something morally wrong and they were then punished like like they but with a criminal charge oh or can well, it even happen no it, it it can't happen in the sense that uh under western kind of uh legal arrangements there's this principle that you can't be you can't be tried or convicted of a crime of something that wasn't a crime when you did it so that you you can't pass a law like 20 years from now that criminalizes something that happened today and then round up people and and arrest them for that because it wasn't uh, a statute at the time the act was engaged in so under these kind of formal systems of law there's these rules about when a crime is a crime uh evidentiary rules for conviction there's all these types of rules that go into it Uh, but a hallmark is going to be uh sorry about that Uh, A hallmark of this is going to be that uh, you just can't be convicted of a crime if it wasn't a crime when you did it. Okay, so um, how do uh, how how do you think that uh, society uh, or or just how why crime exists in a society? I think it's a simple answer, but I I don't think that there's a simple answer to that. Why certain humans choose to do the, the, the deviant action? Yeah. Well, and, and that's where criminological theory comes in. And there's lots of different theories with lots of different views. I mean, I think the first thing that you said that would be controversial in criminology is saying that the criminal chose. Uh, because there's big debates in criminology about free agency and the degree to which people choose to do things. So what, one example with this would be drug addiction. So uh, most countries have some sort of drug laws, some sort of substances are uh, prohibited. And uh, when you think about doing drugs, there's the problem of addiction. And then is addiction actually something that's a choice? Okay, so you might choose to do drugs the first couple times you did it because your body, you have no addiction, your body has no dependency on it. But then once you get addicted, can you really talk about free will when your body has this compulsion to use this, you know, the substance to the degree to which it, it, it's almost overriding free will? Uh, so there's a lot of challenges when we when you, when you think about just crime, and the first one is often this motivational question: Why did they do it, and did it involve choice or not? Uh, not all crimes, especially habitualized forms of behavior like addiction, uh, they actually those behaviors actually bypass bypass areas in the brain which are responsible for deliberation. And so even neurologically, when you're in, when you're enacting a habitualized form of behavior, in the brain, nothing tied to goal setting is going on. And so in in that type of situation, it's difficult to say choice if the the areas of the brain associated with choice making aren't doing anything when that's happening. Yeah, I would say, as you said, that first time, first uh, couple of times you you do certain things, uh, you you, you use a certain substance. I would even say that even, and you said that the first couple of times it's your choice, but I would say, because I I, I did, I studied uh, 
philosophy and I worked on uh, free will. Um, I would say that even when you when you start doing an action, you're not in control because there are certain you're not in control of that to choose that certain action because there are certain variables that are there. And if those variables are there and there are certain variables that are internal to you, so external variables and there are internal variables. And and when they combine, when they both combine, only then a certain kind of behavior can take place. So, for example, if that certain substance didn't even exist, that person would never get addicted to that or would never do certain any kind of uh, action. Uh, yeah. That would lead... Yeah. yeah. Or if we would so, have evolved differently, right? So that we had different receptors for different chemicals. Uh, because one of there's there's some arguments like in social learning theory that uh, people learn to engage in crime, and that he uh, Ron, or, yeah Ronald Akers who whose theory it is differentiates between social and non-social stimuli, and for non-social stimuli like drugs he talks about this kind of they're intrinsically rewarding in some way they they make you feel good. Uh, but that it, the, the fact of the matter is a drug isn't intrinsically anything, right? As you're suggesting, it's part of this complex interaction with the body uh, yeah. that happens. Uh, so so it, it, it's, a, it's a challenging thing to try to convince criminologists of or get them to understand because we have this huge camp uh, in criminology that are, uh, follow what's called control theories. And they're all about kind of uh, classical economic assumptions of human nature and that kind of stuff, which just is really at odds with modern neuroscience and modern science. Could you explain control theory? Yeah, so the, the basic kind of tenet of control theories are that uh, people uh, in, are hedonistic, they engage in crime uh, to satisfy whatever needs that they have at the moment, and you don't question motivation, you just assume it. And so if you assume motivation, then what you're trying to look at to see what prevents crime is uh, what types of social controls a person's exposed to. So within social control theory by Hershey, it might be your parents and how well you're attached to them. Like if you're gonna do a crime, do you imagine your mom uh, you know, getting mad at you and punishing you and then you don't do the crime? Uh, you know, are you a really good student? And if you did a crime, you're not going to be able to get into university. Uh, so these types of, some of them, are, they're all kind of nested in, in the connection between a person and society in some way, and how that person gets constrained and has incentives not to do crime. Yeah. So uh, what's the opposite of, of control theory? So typically, it's been seen as uh, learning theories, originally differential association by Edwin Sutherland, and then uh, later Ronald Aker's social learning theory. And these approaches contend that crime's just like any other behavior and that it can be learned, and that when you learn it, you're learning things like how to do it, you're learning morals that say it's cool or it's all right to do. Uh, and so... Uh, the argument here, the argument between the two is the kind of classic, you know, tabula rasa versus hedonic assumption arguments in philosophy. It, it's more or less the same kind of thing, except I think far weaker. <laughs> yeah. So, and also in criminology, um, so it's, I think we've discussed how individual uh, is in, uh, starts to become a criminal and starts doing the, the, the criminal acts. But how does a society, let's just, let's just for a moment say that, uh, that, that the individual has at least some kind of control. How does a society affect, um, how, how does a society affect a person 
when it comes to that person committing a crime? Yes. Yeah, so, so there's, there's, are you asking kind of like an ecological question, like the environment, like what is it around a person that causes? Yeah. 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 So, uh, there, there's a lot of research on this and a lot of there, there's early research uh, looking at the distribution of crime statistics started in the 1800s. And uh, in the 1920s, the Chicago School at the University of Chicago, uh, the, the, one of the second or third soci depart sociology departments in the country, uh, they started looking at these kind of ecological dynamics. Robert Park was a theorist that was interested in applying ecological theories. And what they looked at was uh, in Chicago at the time, it was going through really rapid growth because of immigration with industrialization. And uh, as this growth would happen, what they noticed was certain areas had the same crime rate over time, despite the different immigrant groups moving in and out. So it wasn't the group per se that was crime, it was that area. And what, what they argued was that there's when, when we're looking at crime, one major source of it at this kind of macro level, uh, or at least beyond the individual level, is this disorganization of the environment in which controls break down, which then make it easier for people to learn how to do bad things. Uh, they get exposed to other kinds of models and that kind of stuff. And uh, what happened here with the immigrants was because you're in this environment in which people keep moving in and out, there's no social stability there and social control doesn't form. And so it's more difficult to engage in social uh, control uh, as a result of that. And so ultimately it, it kind of goes to this, well, you know, maybe people are innately hedonistic or not, but when the environment lacks social controls, you know, people will start doing the most efficient things over time. Yeah, and, and how does society play a role when it comes to forming certain kind of um, laws and regulations? How, 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 to what extent does it, uh, does it affect the legislation? Well, I mean, it, uh, you, you do see legislation, like, like if you were to go to a different type of crime, say white-collar crime, we've had a lot of administrative law uh, passed uh, that's not criminal law, uh, even though there's parallels between stat uh, statutory types of laws and regulatory types of laws. But uh, you can see that if society sees something as a threat, then it will try to pass laws to protect it. So one example of this might be insider trading, right? It doesn't sound horrible uh, when you're just like, oh, I just knew uh, the value of the stock before I sold it so I could maximize my thing. But you know, why would the government want to prevent that? Well, if everyone's doing this, the stock market's going to crash because there's no predictability or certainty in it and there's no trust, right? So in certain situations, you'll have uh, trying to protect the good. Uh, in the United States, there's major debates right now about gun legislation again because of all the mass shootings that we've had. So that's one of the ways in which some people are trying to respond. Others are actively blocking that. Uh, so usually, you know, something might happen or there's a chronic problem that, that people are trying to legislate. And because it has to go through this formal process, you know, it, it takes a lot of coordination and work uh, to happen to get something passed. Hmm. And, and also, um, this is probably a little bit controversial uh, to ask, but is there any evidence that a certain, you, if, if you belong to a certain race, you're more likely to commit a certain kind of crime or crimes or... Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so well, criminology has a long sorted history with this question because uh, Lombrosa and other, some others uh, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, uh, were of this biological positive school. They were uh, Italian uh, physical anthropologists. And, or actually maybe Lombrosa was a doctor, I forget. But uh, what they were doing was they were claiming that criminals were atavists or throwbacks to an earlier evolutionary time and that certain races, because they were closer back to our ancestors, were more criminal. Uh, today, the, while we do see different like crime rates in groups like African-Americans and those types of things, there's, there's not the belief that any of it is tied to some sort of innate racial differences uh, because race isn't a real thing, at least within, ho uh, within Homo sapiens, right? Where we have a species, but there aren't sub-races. There's just some people with dimorphic characteristics that are different, but there's not uh, any kind of genetic race or anything like that. So that kind of line of research, I, I think, is kind of, I mean, you can't engage in it, to be honest, uh, and uh, for good reason, because it was really poor science. I mean, the science that they were using was not good. Evolutionary theory uh, was still early. They hadn't had the modern synthesis with DNA and those types of things. So when these types of studies were prevalent, they didn't have the science to debunk them that we now do. So why the, the, the science that they were using was not good? Well, because like they... Uh, Prior to the, the modern synthesis of evolutionary theory and the discovery of DNA, right, you had no idea of knowing what made us up, how we were similar, how we were different. And uh, so what people would do is just look at measurements. They would uh. measure lumps and bumps and these types of things. Well, you know, you mm. acquire those through life. People who've had hard lives, <laughs> you know, can yeah. have scars and bumps and those types of things. And they really had... They didn't really have good theory, and they didn't have any good evidence. Hmm. Uh, now I'm thinking, like, wh when we see a certain person, you know, like, we just judge that person by only yeah. their, how they look, and how, mm -hmm. they, how they're dressed. Does that thing hold any water? Like, if a certain individual looks... Uh, let's just say untrustworthy like you know you, when you, probably i think you have also noticed this when you just go out and you oh, meet yeah, people yeah. you just it just feels like oh, you know like yesterday i was i was with a bunch of friends and i just asked them a question uh, so as i say it's just it just depends it's the same question that i'm asking you now it just depends on vibes you know like how do you feel yeah so yeah it, it, does it does this thing like the, the the way we humans feel you know a certain kind of vibe you know towards mm -hmm. someone does this thing hold any scientific scientific reasoning uh, does it hold any water when it comes to uh, like how we judge other people based on their appearances uh, yeah yeah well, well so if we if we think about a modern highly differentiated society in which there's tons of variability in clothing dress all of these types of things it's a free yeah. society, so you don't have, you know, some sort of like caste-like assigned clothes or, or something. Uh, in, in a modern society that's lacking those types of things, it, it's very hard to look at someone and say, hey, that's a criminal. Uh, but if I were to, uh, you know, maybe live in another society at another time, there might be a class of people who are criminals that are forced to dress or act and, you know, forced to 
dress or act in certain ways, and then I can detect them, you know, and, and you know, like a scarlet letter or, or those types of things uh, to mark people. But the fact that we've done that shows just how re unreliable it is to look at someone and know, right? You, you just can't know from looking at it. Now, when you talk about what the mechanisms involved in that are, what's happening is, is when a person looks at another person, uh, yeah. they, they pull up the stereotypes, uh, they pull up all their memory, and there's this predictive modeling process that goes on in which they match their memories and knowledge with the environment. And these schemas that are stored in semantic memory build up over time, they're, they're abstractions, and uh, they're hierarchically organized into a meaning system. And so when you see someone, you might see, you know, some sort of meaning like a piece of clothing or something in there that says, I associate that with criminality. And that's what you're thinking of. And that when, when you recall it, then it generates an emotional response that's tied to it. And so when you're seeing someone with that, the question you should ask yourself is who, who's, what trait are they demonstrating to you that maybe in the past what uh, someone possessed that did something harmful to you? But uh, what I also want to ask you is that has there any experiment been done um, where people uh, took a certain kind of sample size and uh, so, so they were like, okay, let's judge these people. So certain people, let's just say, I don't know, 100 people, 10 people maybe judged a bunch of people, let's say, let's say 100 people. Or, or a thousand people, I don't know, they just looked at their um, uh, faces. And then uh, they said, uh, this person is more likely to be a criminal, at least them. And then mm -hmm. th there's going to be, I think, at, at some point, a certain kind of person or, or certain kind of face uh, would, would pr I don't know, I don't know if, if I'm right, but I think that uh, s certain people would choose certain kind of face to, to, to be more likely to be criminal. Criminal or uh, someone who would do bad stuff, that or the person that they can't trust. Now, yeah. uh, like, like, so has there uh, has there any kind of uh, experiment been done where it's been proven if that person, or those people, or that sample size is saying that that person can be a criminal, they think, mm -hmm. and then that person or that that kind of a person, uh, or, or or that person who has certain kind of facial features. Uh, then was proven to to be criminal or to be bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so in science, the we always will ask how how could that work? So if yeah. hypothetically speaking, people did have this ability to look at someone's face and know that they were criminal, then yeah. you would have to demonstrate where that ability comes from. Is it would it be something that people are born with, where it kind of like uh, you know men can detect the optimal waist ratio of a woman or something, and so yeah. there's something going on there that they could see. Uh, and I I don't think that's probably true. I don't think that. Uh, there, there's no evidence of anything for that. And we, we know through these kind of learning mechanisms and stereotyping how this stuff works. And uh, the, the thing with crime is it's not a homogenous thing. So, you know, based on this idea of uh, a crime, we're treating this category of crime as if it's homogenous in some way and can mark someone. But the, the reality is, is, is that there's, you know, dozens and dozens of different types of crime. Behaviorally, many of them have very little in common with one another. And so the question would be is, given the, the range of different types of crime that's out there, 
what would it be that marks them or predisposes them to do certain things? Uh, and we just don't have any evidence for that. We, we also know from psychology that people are not good at detecting lies. So uh, you're no better than random chance, essentially. And so when we think about that kind of as an analogous situation, right, how do you know if you're lying? Well, if we can't even do that, how are we going to be able to tell if someone's a criminal or not just by looking at them? Yeah, that's a good point. But uh, I'm also in the in the business field. So mm -hmm. most of the decisions are just based on gut feelings. So if, oh, they, yeah, yeah. if they, yeah, and it is so weird to me because there, everyone thinks, oh, everyone is making logical decisions and this and that, but most of the decisions are based on gut feelings. And if they if they meet someone and they and and they, that person is really charismatic, they can he can talk well, he can convince that person really well, and and then they feel really good about that person or that project or that investment, then they they're fine with that. But if someone with not that good of uh, communication skills, or mm -hmm. you know they, they 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 belong to a different race, or they they speak in a different accent, or they they're wearing different kind of clothes, or they belong to a different kind of religion, then it, it, it's it's kind of at least the people like they, they they think that you know they should be careful at least in business, and not everyone is like that, but but some people are like like that. Um, so what would you, would you say anything about that or? Well, I mean, any? part of what it sounds like what's going on is an in-group out-group dynamic. So, yeah, you know, if, yeah. if the owner is a basic, you know, of a certain race and the, like maybe some sort of Western person or even American, right. Uh, then part of what can happen is that, uh, you can your the way your brain works in detect in, in empathizing and connecting to other people is such that uh, I can see you as an in group member one moment and then have it flip. So if, if we were like sitting down having a, a well, I don't know if you have a beer, but if we had a beer uh, and we were drinking it, I can say uh, I can't say that here though. But yeah. Oh. oh okay. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so yeah, so, oh, geez, this look. yeah, so say hypothetically me and another person were having a beer and, uh, we're having a good time chatting. Uh, I'm trusting him. We're having this nice charismatic interchange, these types of things. Uh, and then, you know, he says, I hate the Seattle Seahawks, which is a American football team that, that I'm a big fan of. The second he says something that classifies him as an outgroup member, my brain will yeah. switch. And then I'm less empathetic towards him. Uh, all of these different things are consequential to that simple reframing. It's so, yeah, I think I can relate to. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say so that that's partially what could be going on. And there's also mm. a, a big literature in decision sciences, you know, that shows how bad intuitions are and, and how those aren't good for for rational decision making. Uh, so. Probably part of what's going on is whoever's doing it has the kind of capital that gives them enough slack to mess up. But uh, if that's the case, if intuitions are not that good when it comes to decision making, but we humans, uh, ever since we we were we became humans, we're, we're basing our decisions or on our intuitions. And if they were wrong, then how did we come this far? Well, it, it, you're talking about a much different evolutionary environment. 
so that you know these large massive societies that we have are very very new so if you go back to about 10,000 BC this is when we see hunting gathering uh, societies starting to settle uh, before they were just nomadic moving around this is uh, the time that the ice age is ending and so ocean levels are, are filling up and, and flooding out previous lands that these humans were interacting in. And that forced them to start uh, settling in some locations into horticultural communities. As horticultural communities, uh, they would often bump into other uh, bands of people uh, and either absorb them or go to war because they would try to steal the, the produce and that kind of stuff. And so slowly what happens in human societies is as they grow, they tend to eat their neighbors and, and just kind of keep growing up. And when we think about the complexity then of modern life, uh, it's a much different environment than having 30 to 100 people nomadically wandering around and which, you, you know, everything is more immediate. If you see a lion, you better get fear. <laughs> you better get afraid quick and be your intuition better be to run. But when we're talking about a modern complex society, it's not clear what that should be in every situation. As a matter of fact, a major difficult we, difficulty we have is figuring out what to do in novel situations. Yeah, but I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm also like I'm thinking that um, so we humans have also lived for I don't know we we've been here on uh, for hundred thousand years I think or two hundred thousand years. Yeah, I mean you see different numbers, but basically yeah. up up to two hundred thousand you see is the modern humans, and then so yeah 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 so I'm thinking that we humans must have developed some kind of intuition to detect a bad person who's going to hurt our tribe, who's going to hurt our family, who's going to maybe take over our, you know, our, our stuff. It, it, what do you, what do you think? Well, I mean, the, the thing is, is that the, the question would be is why, why is there this teleology here that we must have done this? Uh, yeah. Because to we, survive. Again, we don't see any evidence of it. Okay. 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 Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's um, the thing is at the end of the day, if it were to be true, we should be able to discover it, right? It has to have a physical base in reality somewhere. And we just don't, we haven't seen anything like that that I know of. Hmm. Okay. So, um, how, how do you approach studying, analyzing crime, uh, in terms of statistics and trends? Uh, and yeah, like how do you, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, so me personally, yeah, you, yeah, or, or okay, so no, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm I'm different in the field uh, in terms of my approach to science. Uh, criminology, by and large, it's an interdisciplinary field that's heavily fragmented and it includes humanistic inquiry as well as scientific inquiry, all in the same kind of uh, area. And uh, the the mode of science we've more or less adopted comes out of uh, logical positivism. Uh, it's been adjusted over time to what many will call the weak nomological model now. And you have some sort of, of stuff concept. Like you said something logical, like your terms, you said uh, logical. Oh, logical positivism. What, what is it? Logical positivism. Logical positivism. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Could you, could you define it? Oh, so, so it is a philosophy of science that uh, looks at meaning. And so what it tries to do is determine the truth of a sentence. So what 
how that got translated into uh, how that gets translated into science as a movement is that you take a term. So like, say I, I were to want to say that inequality leads to crime, that that's my, my hypothesis or my theory. So I have okay. this concept uh, of crime that I have to define, and then I have to operationalize it some way and measure it. And then what I do is I take, I do a hypothesis test of an operationalization of some sort of cause and some sort of effect that I think, and then I, that the relation between the two is this mathematical thing. And, uh, this mode of science was very, very popular in the early 1900s or the first half of the century because of success in physics with the A-bomb. And the logical deductive nature of physics is really much in line with the logical deductive nature of log logical positivism. Uh, but it, it, it hasn't been successful outside of physics. So if you go to the biological sciences, for example, they're not concerned about laws, they're concerned about mechanisms. And what a mechanism is, is in a very abstract sense, it's just a set of entities, so things, physical things, activities, the things that they do, and how they're organized to produce the phenomenon you're interested in. And so that the idea here is, is that we need to be able to work through complexity. And social phenomena are very, are very complex, and the previous positive mode of science that we had wasn't good at dealing with that. So one of the assumptions of positivism, for example, is that uh, every phenomenon or everything you're studying is uh, a natural kind. So it's, it, you know, it doesn't change over time, it, it, it's static, and that's what allows you to do these logical deductive operations without anything changing because it's, it's a static term. The problem is in the social world and in, in biological systems, things change over time. Uh, I can't say that the properties of a person as a three-year-old leads to the same medical treatments as a person who's 50, right? We, we know physiologically through development that things change. And so what this mechanistic perspective says is what are you interested in knowing and what are the things that generates its existence? So like when I talk about uh, memory, semantic memory earlier, uh, in criminology, semantic memory uh, was treated as something that people could learn through uh, operant conditioning. Uh, and operant conditioning is some sort of stimulus response, stimulus chain. There's a reward or a punishment that's after an act, you know, that, that's involved in it in some way. And that theory claims that you learn meanings through operant conditioning. Well, what with is current neuroscience, so operant, operant conditioning yeah. is a, a declarative, declarative form of memory in which you learn a motor map. And so when we were talking earlier and you're saying that only part of my thoughts deliberately, you know, doing anything in my motion, well, yeah. stored in memory, you have a map of how to move your arm in a certain way. You can't consciously access it. You can send the cue to enact it, but you can't, you can't consciously, you know, access that memory. It's just that not that kind of form of memory. Uh, hmm. But learning theories didn't know that. And so they were claiming that people would learn through operant conditioning. So uh, a person does a bad thing, they get a reward, it's reinforced, they want to keep doing that bad thing. Well, if you can't learn certain meanings through operant conditioning, then that theory can't be true, right? It just physiologically can't be true that people learn through operant conditioning. And using the positive model, you don't fix that. It, it just kind of, you ignore that, uh, 
you, you don't really revise, you abstract it to just say memory, but you're not physically looking at what's producing it, which means if you want to intervene, control, or do anything to it, how do you do that? You, can, you can't intervene in an abstraction. And so what, what I do is I go through existing theories, translate them into our mechanistic perspective, uh, focusing on people, entities, and activities. And then I, we, uh, my partner, Richard Niemeyer, and I, we go through neuroscience in these different areas to see what we've learned that's relevant to maybe a concept and a theory. And then we say, okay, what's physiologically possible? And is that part of the theory or do they include physiologically impossible things as well? And so the idea here is, is that we can use these mechanisms to aid our telling whether a statement's true or not, because we can get in highly precise detail on how something works. Hmm. Um, what are the biggest challenges criminologists like you are facing today? What do you think? Well, I, I think, I, I think the biggest challenge that criminology faces is its theoretical stagnation. So we can't explain crime very well. Uh, we haven't developed any interventions that are reliable. Uh, why? Uh, why? Why can't criminal. we define? Yeah. Well, I, I argue that it's because our theories are so poor that they don't provide the specificity needed to actually develop a meaningful inter intervention. Uh, and, and if you don't know the right mechanisms that are working on something, you're, you're not going to be able to successfully intervene. So what, one example of this would be uh, prison yoga programs. So this is a, a somewhat controversial thing in the United States. We always like uh, we want our criminals you know, really to have it rough and be locked behind bars and everything taken away from them. Well, there's various prison programs and some can go through a yoga program and people are like, well, what, what good's that? You know, what's that going to help them do? Well, what's interesting about yoga and repetitive types of movements are, are that the more you do them, uh, the more it reorganizes certain intrinsic connectivities networks in your brain. So if you imagine your brain and, and the different lobes and sections being connected by neurons, so all of these chunks are being interconnected with one another. Well, certain constellations of these light up in a discrete way that becomes that we know is a certain type of network, like the executive control network. And that graph, that network type topology, the more redundant connections there are, the more ability you have to self-regulate and engage in impulse management, the fewer connections you have in this network of neurons, you're a decreased ability to inhibit. So if someone like says something like a, insults you in some way, you're less likely to be able to inhibit that punching response. And we can see by the topology of the, that network how good you're going to be at this. Okay, and so this is important because we have a theory in, in uh, criminology called self-control theory. Now it's similar to this, but it's not based on any science. It's based purely on classical kind of economic utilitarian assumptions. And uh, the, the challenge then is, is why might yoga work? That social control theory has no mechanism. It can't tell you why it, yoga might help criminals in some way. The neuroscience though shows that those repetitive activities rebuild those networks and increase your physiological ability to engage in top-down regulation. And, and so that's the importance of mechanisms is that when we get at that kind of detail where we can say this brain region and, and these intrinsic connectivity networks are all working together to allow you to inhibit behavior and we need to increase your capacity to regulate so you don't do something dumb and get arrested again, yeah. 
then we could have a new intervention where we focus on getting that person biologically prepared to be dealing with situations where they have to enact impulse regulation. So uh, now that I'm thinking, so if that is the case, if we can do that, like we can analyze their brain, then can we do this also that if a baby is born, we can predict that baby maybe or maybe in the future that that baby is probably going to be maybe be a, that that baby at least is more likely to commit a certain kind of crime, maybe this crime or maybe just the baby is more likely to be a criminal. Can we do that? Or? So, so yeah, there, there, Adrian Rain uh, is a psychiatrist and does some of this kind of stuff. And, and people will talk about adverse childhood experiences, brain injuries, those types of things. And there, that we do have uh, evidence that shows that, yeah, you, you can have, you know, like a, a brain injury or something. Uh, in, in American football, a big thing is uh, rap, re, multiple concussions create a certain... Yeah. Uh, uh, condition within you and that's an acquired thing and impulse regulation management uh, being violent and those types of things are manifest so there are some things like that that the challenge though that you run into is is that there's nothing biological about crime itself it's a social phenomenon because it has to be legislated and all these types of things these legislation you know happened after kind of evolution and it's just not likely that uh we're going to find things which are hyper-reliable. Now, what we're going to find are things that are responsible for some sort of trait that makes it more likely that you'll engage in crime. But it, we're never going to have the fine ability, I think, to say that you have this brain, you know, you have this issue. That's why you committed this crime at that time. That, that's a very difficult uh, thing to do. I mean, uh, methodologically alone, just trying to observe someone to see that's difficult. Okay, uh, because crime is a is a human construct. Uh, so, but morals, uh, they're are, they, uh, would you say they they're human construct morals or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I I don't I, I and when I say that, I don't say that in a postmodern sense. And I uh, hmm. what what I what I mean by it is is that there are tangible conditions that happen in a society which leads to the evolution of morals. And so, uh, yes, there's certain things like uh, we don't want to be murdered. We have basic kind of protection defense mechanisms, these types of things uh, that might help us. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, morals are something that evolve out of situations. And so ultimately, the only, one, the only kind of universal things you're going to find are those things which are tied to common situations across human civilizations. So everyone has encountered possibly someone murdering someone else, right? And they had to do something quickly. Uh, but not all societies have had to deal with insider trading. So, so morality is a result of social interactions and a group to start to try regulating them. And certain things appear to be universal because they're fundamental to human organization. Like you can't do that if the group's going to survive. Yeah, and also, uh, I think in the past, uh, certain actions were just considered fine. For example, raping or pillaging or killing, it, it, was, it, was, it was need of the other tribe. Otherwise, they would probably die. Their, their children would die. Their women would die. So they have to do that. Uh, so I, I think from that perspective, we probably, humans, did not have any specific certain kind of, you know, this action is just wrong. 
So then our brains were like, okay, so this is morally bad. So this is this must be considered bad. And yeah. that's why I think, uh, and that's why I think we can't by looking at a person. I think we can't say that person is bad, um, because uh, because yeah. Well, I mean, what what does yeah. one mean by bad? Right? Is is that it? Yeah, yeah. That's it. These yeah. again are linguistic constructs that we're using and this is actually why the mechanistic approach is so important is because normally if i'm talking about a concept all i can do is convey a definition and meaning if you ask with a mechanistic mm -hmm. approach i can say this is a, a symbolic representation of what's going on just like a definition would be but then i apply a model to it and i show physically what's happening because that's actually more precise communicating what's happening than trying to write out some causal diagram or something uh, and, and so ultimately, uh, when we're, we're, oh, sorry, I lost my train. What were we going off of right then? That we, we humans, we, we don't have uh, our, our, so the actions that we did in the past were not considered uh, that, that, uh, that these actions are just bad. We changed. So sometimes oh, yeah, yeah. rape, yeah, yeah. So rape was just. Yeah, was, so, so. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so what I was getting at with the, the, the thing is I can precisely point it out. Now, when you talk about these bad things, right, one of the things that you'll notice is there's always exception rules to these taboos. So as much as you want to say it's wrong to, to kill someone, well, what if it's in self-defense? What if it's in war? What if it's in these times, right? And so what you, what you run into is even the kind of morals that we think are more kind of mala and say are, are variable and conditional, yeah, yeah, they're, they 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 change over time. And now I'm thinking, uh, do, do you have any any just uh, have any perspective on this? That do you think certain things that we consider today uh, morally wrong? I would say, yeah, let's just morally wrong would be considered morally right would be considered morally wrong in the future, or the things that we consider morally wrong today would be considered morally right in the future. Yeah, th those those things are possible. Uh, it, it just depends on what the, the act is. Uh, what one example of this would be in the United States, uh, people, various states are legalizing marijuana. And yeah. uh, just years ago, this was illegal. This was something that, uh, you know, you can get some good time for it. Uh, U.S. drug policies tends to coincide when certain minority groups are using substances. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so when, when white people were doing drugs, hey, that's fine. But then once black people start doing the same drugs, better criminalize it, better criminalize it. So uh, mm -hmm. this in this way, you know, change can be kind of weaponized to a certain degree. Uh, but what we're seeing now is, is that marijuana has become so mainstream, it's acceptable and states are abandoning those laws. Uh, so, so a variety of things might be able to cause it. Like in the United States right now, uh, th there's been major concerns over the cost of incarceration. And so we, we might end up just not penalizing things in the same level because we don't have space anymore. Uh, so when, when you look at a crime, there, there's so many things that could go into it and why it might change. Uh, you're typically, though, not going to have someone like you, a law passed that you can just kill or rape anyone anytime, right? Like there's still these kind of things that are so detrimental that it's like there's no... There's no uh, acceptance of those. Yeah. So, what are the, as as a, as a I would say um, as a society or as a as a government, what kind of strategies do they do they use to prevent crime? Uh, the, the, this is we're really backwards in this 
way. So mm -hmm. legislation and social control through arrest and those types of things are tools that they use, obviously. But then we have like social media campaigns. Uh, so uh, we like every year around uh, Christmas time and the holidays in the United States, if you're driving a car listening to the radio, you'll hear this uh, ominous voice saying, you know, the cops are out in full force looking for DUI drivers right now. If you drive drunk, you'll get caught. And so they try to create this deterrent effect. And the entire criminal justice system and legal system is really formulated on utilitarian principles that have over time become kind of perverted and twisted and not what they originally were. But everything is still framed in that language. It's kind of framed, yeah. That that that's a that's a really nice way of putting it. I think the what I have noticed. So I'm from Pakistan. Now I'm living in Estonia. I, I so there I I also see that it's like they put fear. If you do this, then uh, you you have to suffer the consequences. It's like almost almost like as yeah. if they're your parents and and they're gonna beat you basically. They they're not gonna scold you. They're gonna beat yeah. you and they're gonna beat you bad. And here also, it's not like they say they're going to beat you, but they have these pictures, uh, you know, like the, the, the policeman is standing. He has a really strong, strong jawline and he's kind of angry. And I think the same happens in the U.S. Uh, so it's kind of like a, I think it's it's these uh, deterrent um, tactics that that governments use or, or organizations use. Now, what are yeah, the yeah, what yeah. are? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, it, it's it's kind of the, the oldest form of control. That, and uh, when socio sociology was kind of developing as a science uh, in the 19-teens, uh, there's this famous book called The Polish Peasant by W.I. Thomas and Florian Zanecki, who is a Polish immigrant. And what they were doing was they were looking at how immigrants from Poland were coming to the United States, settling, and all the kind of crime and all the kind of social issues that they dealt with. And mm -hmm. one of the things that they, they were doing this for was because they saw the power that science had on, on other things like engineering and these other types of things, they saw the success. So uh, sociologists are often always like, well, how can we use this to improve society? And the challenge that they laid out at the beginning of the book was is that societies become so complicated, traditional means of social control are no longer effective, which more or less was this order and forbidding type of thing that you described, don't do this or something will happen. Yeah. But when you have a very complex society, those things tend not to work, uh, or they don't work as effectively yeah. as you would like them to work. And so uh, we, you don't have a very effective policy as a result of this. And that, that's why science is important, because if we can understand the right conditions and situations in which these things happen, our ability to control and intervene is much higher. But right now we're not at that point. So what are the effective ways of, um, of, of con controlling or reducing crime in, in, a, in a society? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, there's, a, there's tons of different ways. Uh, one school of thought is kind of environmental criminology. And what they they focus on the build environment and physical facilities and these types of things. And they say, well, how can we harden them or limit opportunities for crimes? And so how can we engineer uh, a space in some way that's just naturally not going to encourage crime because there's nothing of value to steal or it's too hard to get something, those types of things. Uh, mm -hmm. When we think about uh, uh, more kind of behavioral types of interventions, 
uh, these are where we haven't been very effective, but our theories aren't very good. Uh, and, and so uh, with the mechanistic approach that, that my colleague and I have adopted, we think we will be able to get to a point where we ha will have more precision, but it's just gonna take 20 to 30 years of research before we can get this because we started off on the wrong road. Okay. Um, so, so, so what, what strategies do you, you and your colleagues think uh, are going to be effective that, that would be able to restrain? Well, like we mentioned, uh, yeah. we mentioned the yoga situation as, as one way to biologically target what's wrong with a person in terms of not being able mm. to engage in that top-down mm. regulation mm. because of their network. Mm. Uh, so things like that would be important. Uh, organizational things. So like, are they in a family organization? Do they have a support system? Uh, because uh, a lot of crime is uh, in the absence of these kind of social controls, which are from these informal relations that you have. And so if we get them attached to, to people, that can help. Uh, we and, also and maybe this is the reason design. why. Yeah. And maybe this is the reason why immigrants, they, they commit crime uh, because they don't mm -hmm. have family. They don't have support system and they don't have money. And uh, yeah. they are not sure if they would be able to stay in this country. Uh, because if they go back, they already have spent so much money that uh, if they go back, the family's like, what, 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 what are you doing? They, they probably would disown them. Um, yeah, because they stay, they probably sold. So you know how it is. So for, uh, for a, a person who's coming from a third world country, um, their family, they, they, they want that person to go to the first world country so that their family can live better because then that person would be making money there and that person yeah. would be supporting their family. And, and, and if that person were to come back, then it's just uh, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing that that person has done because that person now has, um, has just wasted the money or the, the efforts yeah. that that family put in. So, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. very much so. And what, what you're talking about also kind of starts to get at uh, the rise of organized crime in urban areas, right? Is, is that yeah. if you're a new immigrant group and if you're of a category that you're going to get discriminated against and block legitimate opportunities for you, mm. this is one of the reasons why we see organized crime in cities in the United States is be, uh, tied to specific ethnic groups is because of the yeah. settlement patterns and this kind of immigration thing. And like when you look at, I, I might be off on this, but I want to say that there's that the mafia is even having troubles now uh, keeping getting people into it, at least the, in the U.S., because with so many normal good job opportunities and not being discriminated mm. against the way that they once were, what's the lure of organized crime if you can make a living doing a legitimate job? Yeah, 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 that's a, that's a... Yeah, so I, but I think as society is um, evolving, there, there, there's more business, there's more money in the economy. I, I think eventually more people will be able to find jobs, uh, immigrants or non-immigrants. And I think the and and you you you're saying that uh, because um, people don't have family support, people people don't have these kind of things. That's why, and they don't have money. Um, and also, I think, uh, and that's why they're committing crime. I think it also kind of comes down to money because if they have money, then they can have a have a better house, and then they can start a family. They would have this support system. They would have uh, they're more likely to have friends because they would would spend more free time. I don't think anyone thinks about that. Well, and, and that, that's essentially what you saw uh, when I was talking about the 
University of Chicago and the kind of ecological yeah. model where immigrant groups would come in because they would get their their start in what was called this uh, zone of transition that was within walking range to industry and these types of things. And as they made money, they would move out of the core into eventually into the suburbs. And so there was this kind of mobility that happened where you start off as a poor immigrant, you come into this re region, you start making some money, and eventually you move into those better neighborhoods. But that area, because of the low rental rates and those types of things, kept bringing people in and creating the problem. Yeah, because that it's 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 probably yeah it's probably not the area it's just because how everything is fashion so because they're they're low rents so those people who can afford higher rents would go there and because they already don't have money then they're more likely to commit crime oh yeah this yeah. is uh, I never thought about it this way and it is. It's yeah, it is. So, so what do you think? Um, but, but we already have discussed that uh, money, like they 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 get some kind of opportunities, more jobs. Um, so, is there any any solution that is being implemented in the U.S. or or in, or in the rest of the world? Uh, no, I mean we not not that I know of. And again, I'm on the basic science end of things, and so uh, there might be something cutting edge or something being developed, but. Uh, not, not that I know of. I, I think there's been a long history in the United States of, of associating poverty with crime. And, mm. uh, and, and essentially, uh, Robert Merton, who was a famous sociologist at Columbia University, uh, he had what was called uh, anomie theory, where he predicted that if people couldn't get the money that they needed and that kind of stuff, that they might innovate and that kind of stuff. And so a lot of our policies in the 60s uh, were kind of based upon that when we're trying to improve the welfare state, uh, trying to create you know, equitable race relationships. So we're still a long ways off from that. Uh, but what we find is, is that it's not necessarily the poverty itself. It's these other conditions that you're dealing yeah. with that are more associated with crime because people can always lower their standards or lower their expectations to how they can live comfortably. Uh, so there, I mean, most people who are in poverty don't commit crime. No, yeah, no, no, no. They most, I think most people are good people. They don't, they don't want to hurt um, other people, like physically, emotionally. I think, uh, but there are some people, uh, and I don't even know because, because, as we discussed, the free will thing. How much are they in control? How much yeah. were they treated badly as a kid? And then they grew up, and now they don't even know the, why they're making certain kind of decisions. And, and then, well, or and, and, making, you know, yeah. to kind of elaborate that and what we were talking about earlier in terms of morals, you know, we, we yeah. think about uh, like gang members. And uh, so there's this book uh, called The Code of the Street, and it's this ethnography. I think it was in Philadelphia. And uh, what uh, this guy was doing was studying, you know, the, the, the way in which these gang members acted, the, how they saw the world, how they represented the world. And uh, a big thing for them were there, there, these norms like you've got to look someone in the eyes, otherwise they might and show them respect. Otherwise, you know, they might hurt you. And, and, and so when you think about the kind of violence that these people are, are facing in their day to day lives, uh, this is one of those things in which they can learn how to engage in crime. They can learn uh, these codes. But you have this morality, right? That if someone does wrong to you, you get them. <laughs> you get them somehow. Yeah. Uh, 
a Lex Talionis-like way, and and that's perfectly normatively seen as right. Uh, because I think that there's a reason. Because if you don't get them, then then you you'd be considered a weak person or a weak uh, you know a weak gang. And then that, those people who did something wrong to you, they're gonna do something wrong again to you. And yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, but it only right only in certain conditions do we see that. That's not gonna explain crime in all situations or locations. It's a yeah. type of crime that just happens under certain conditions only. Yeah. So as a as a society, uh, as as citizens, how can we help? to reduce crime in the society? I mean, I think in general, if, if we had better safety nets, that would go a long way. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, in industrialized countries, you do have very, high, in the United States in particular, a very high wealth gap between the, the poor and the hyper-affluent. And uh, in many situations, people just don't have the basic things that they need to live. And so I, I think you're not trying to cure cure poverty per se because we know that not everyone who's impoverished you know engages in crime but what you're trying to do is get them the, the structures that they need to get that social support to have that family to build those informal systems of control that will then reduce crime because at the end of the day the the number one thing which is going to reduce crime is how interconnected your society is and uh how much bonded and stakes they have in each other yeah. You know, so if, if you want to think about why certain countries have very low crime rates, well, how racially homogenous are they? Yeah, that, yeah, why, yeah, could you, could you elaborate why certain countries have lower uh, crime rates and, and certain countries have higher crime rates? Yeah, so from a sociological kind of perspective, we would look at these kind of social controls and we'd say, what are the social controls in place? How do they work? How do they develop? If we look at the United States, right, it's a relatively new country, and uh, there was a massive expansion west that was much faster than government. So when you think about the old cowboy shooting the six shooter, uh, that was a necessity to to defend yourself because you're out on the, the homestead. You don't have the government or any institutions to protect you, and you got to be able to protect yourself. Uh, so... There's, there's an evolutionary nature of countries and how certain conditions can affect the type of crime. And so, like the United States uh, with our constitution and guns, right? It's just that simple thing that we can own a gun generates a lot of deadly crime in our country. So for these racially homogenized things, I think one of the things that you have is uh, tight network density in terms of family connections and those types of things. So families are probably doing a really good job at... at uh, controlling people in the absence of immigration or in the absence of a kind of other immigration groups, you're not going to have those types of dynamics that we earlier were talking about, about immigrant move coming in and, and facing yeah. those kinds of conditions. But the second these countries start getting immigrants, you start seeing the crime rates, but it's not the immigrants themselves. It's the conditions that they're coming into that create that opportunity or create that situation. Yeah. So is there any country that has somehow dealt with this this kind of problem of immigrants coming to their country and uh, still the crime or maybe the crime rate initially went up but then they, they kind of you know they, they, yeah they and, and since I that's tends to be more in the kind of policy world that people look at that stuff uh, I, I don't know of 
of a study that does that, but I'm sure something's out there because everyone's always comparing the United States to Scandinavian yeah. countries saying, why aren't we them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why would you think so? Because they have a different political structure. Scandinavian company uh, countries have different political structure and the U.S. has a different political structure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that countries aren't all the same. And like, if we think about an animal, right, you or I more or less have our organs in the same spots and we more or less function yeah, in the same way. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but when you look at countries, right, you can have different political systems, different economic systems, religion, mm -hmm. how that's organized. There's all of these internal factors which are going to essentially have a different anatomy, which creates different types of activities. And so like in, mm -hmm. in uh, China, for example, you're probably not going to have a lot of white collar crime, at least in the way that we think about it in the West. But you probably would have political crime in terms of like people stealing from the party. Right. And so mm -hmm. every so many years, we'll see that someone's executed or someone disappears in China. Usually there's some story that there was fraud or something involved. And you don't know how right or wrong that is. But the, the point is, is that the organization of the society itself creates the conditions for which crime can happen. And, and when you look at those Scandinavian countries, you have long winter months, families indoor yeah. for large chunks of yeah. time together. Uh, you, you have just different sets of conditions. And it's cold, right? You're not going outside yeah. all the time. <laughs> no. Uh, and you're not having the same opportunities. No, yeah, I used to, when I used to live in Pakistan, I, used, I, I would go out uh, with, with like, like, not all the time, but I would just, I'm like, oh, today I want to go. So tonight I would go. So yeah, I would go. But here I have to prepare myself uh, in advance. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like maybe a week before, okay, Friday is going to come and I have to go because it's been two months and I haven't socialized because of the winter. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, it is. Uh, it's just. And, and when you go out, you're like, why are you going? Why not just play video games at home? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah it's. And I think that well, also... that's another. Yeah. That, it's funny that you mentioned video games because I did publish that paper with Kevin on uh, Kevin McCaffrey on uh, video games and uh, and video games and crime. And what, what we're interested in are these types of organizational questions. Uh, so, uh, Video games are kind of weird in the sense that they have their origins coming out of pinball and these other kind of like amusement things, which would, would be a cash business that was very appealing to organized crime because you're dipping quarters in it. And yeah. uh, so that, that would be something. So crime could be associated with it in that way. Uh, in the but 70s, how, how, how can crime be associated with that? It's, it's still legal, right? Like you, you, you're, you're playing. Oh, that, yes. Uh, so what you're doing is you're laundering money, right? You got this drug money that you have to claim came in somehow. But under normal uh, kind of businesses, you have receipts and books and these other types of things. But when it comes okay. to a video game, you just have the coin slot that you're pushing stuff into. Uh, and mm -hmm. I know it's changed depending on the place here. So you might have a ticket or something. But uh they were, they were popular for organized crime and so were vending machines and those types of things because uh, it would allow you to, as a front, to launder your money. Okay. But uh, you were talking about video games. Yeah, so yeah. So, you... so one yeah. of the things that we looked at at video games was how societies were technologically reorganizing since the 70s. And we have all of these arcades uh, in the United States in the 70s and 80s, even into the early 90s before they started dying. 
Well, conveniently, they started dying about the time that 16-bit home video game systems came out. So, like the the I think in Europe it would have been the Sega Mega Drive. Same. Uh, I played uh, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so the, those the, as 16-bit consoles, those were the first times you had arcade quality graphics at home. With Nintendo, there was always this major gap between the arcade and your home system. So you know, you buy that game for your Nintendo that was based on the arcade game, but it looked nothing like it. It didn't control like it or no, anything. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you see this in, in the 90s with these games coming out. So as people, what we argue in that paper is, is that as people start buying these video games, they start uh, going to arcades less. And this is at the time we start seeing the, the arcades die. Well, if you were to imagine what an arcade is, it's a whole bunch of guys and their teens hanging out together, talking smack to one another, maybe encountering a rival group. Uh, and so, you know, people were just out and about more to interact and bump off of one another and, and have opportunities for fighting. But if now these teenagers are just hanging out in their basements uh, playing video games, they're, they don't have the same opportunity structures that they once did. They're more or less incapacitated in their homes. So video games basically single-handedly reduce the crime in terms of uh, like teenagers fighting and also money laundering. <laughs> that, that <laughs> yeah, is... no, it, it, they're, they're involved in all these weird ways as a cultural object. Yeah, now they're, they're not necessarily you know, responsible for a ton or all of crime decreases, but they are something that, that we were able to demonstrate that state, we, mm. how we tested it is that we looked at states that, uh, oh, states in which people reported, the percentage of people reporting in states that they played computer games at home, uh, because that was the best variable we can get. And we figured, figured that that was kind of the tip of the iceberg because there's always more Genesis or mega drives that was the Genesis in the United States. So there's always, you know, more mega drives and Super Nintendos out there um, to, to kind of preoccupy people. So it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's an incapacitation thing. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking now, uh, Netflix, uh, how much did that also uh, or had an effect that we don't even know uh, in terms of yeah. reducing crime? And yeah, and, and there's so there's I'm... a theory called routine activities theory that uh, focused on how changes that were happening in post-World War II led to more crime. So things like miniaturization of technology devices. So, you know, this thing here is a hugely yeah. valuable, easy to steal thing. And so these types of things can enhance crime. Uh, but what Kevin and I were trying to show is what, what you're saying is these changes can also restructure it to make it difficult. It just depends on what change you're looking at. Yeah, it's um, it just, um, imagine so many, it's so much things that we have now, like every single day, there's a new, uh, new product coming out and, and how yeah. they're shaping our behavior, our, our psychology and how we interact with the society, interact with the money, with the businesses, how we trust people. It is, yeah. uh, it is mind boggling. Well, think about like credit cards, right? Is, uh, yeah. The, the loss and fraud and those types of things of credit cards, but at least you're not carrying cash. Yeah, yeah, and and I think with the credit cards or the with the debit cards, uh, you you kind of have some kind of safety. If someone steals steals it, at least you can mm -hmm. you can block it. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, such a an amazing thing. So, uh, how do you see the 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 future of criminology? 
um, how how do you think would it evolve? Yeah, well, I, 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 I it hasn't really evolved as part of the problem. <laughs> is is that uh, we we haven't really gained new theoretical insights. I think most criminologists would think that we're in a kind of lull where we just don't have any new ideas. And uh, mm -hmm. part of the problem for that is because criminology, at least as practiced in the United States, came out of sociology. And sociology was always trying to defend its uniqueness from psychology and other fields. And so they said there was uh, a hesitation to include psychology and other sciences into these types of things. And so if we kind of impose these self restraints on ourselves and we say we can't ask certain questions, then that, that kind of limits you when every other science has gone interdisciplinary in some way as, uh, and, and started looking like at, at how various systems interact. So if you were to think about, you know, uh, biophysics as a field, right, that that's something that didn't exist 100 years ago. And with that came all these new theories. Uh, but when we look at crime, we still more or less have the same theories that we've had for 50 years. And that what that's a sign of is, is that we're a very policy adjacent field in which policy analysis is happening more than basic science. And so if we don't do anything, I think we're going to continue to move in that direction. You're going to see uh, criminologists more like economists in terms of their use of econometrics and statistics. And they'll really kind of push for this policy uh, policy science. If what I'm doing is successful and we're able to integrate stuff from different fields, then I think uh, we'll have a lot more power in the future to be a real science and meaningfully, meaningfully intervene in things. And we'll, we'll be able to answer all these questions that we never could before. So like before, if I, if I have a theory that says I learned symbolic meanings through operant conditioning, I couldn't test if that was right or wrong. But with my framework, I can. Uh, and so I think that if people uh, pay attention to what we're doing and get on board with it, I think we can have a very promising science side. But if we don't, I think we're more or less just digress into uh, a policy field and we, we won't really produce knowledge that's meaningful or useful because it's all correlative. But why people or the, the, the current um, norm in, in criminology, they're sticking to policy side or analyzing the what, what's going on in the policy. So I think part of it is that uh, we've had major changes in education and higher education in the United States around the world in terms of you know these metrics for performance and these types of things. And when you look at quantitative analysis, uh, they're kind of easy to crank out these policy analysis, quantitative papers, you know, did this reduce crime? Did it not? It gives you kind of a, a clear cut answer, even though it's not theoretically informed. And those types of papers, you can get published a lot, which every scholar needs to have high publication count, you know, to get your fame and to get your promotion and those types of things. Yeah. So that that's one of the things that criminologists have cited over time. Another thing is, is that uh, there's a lot of public sector work for criminologists. So if, if I uh, get my master's degree and maybe learn how to do crime mapping stuff, I might be able to start off at a job that's $80,000 a year. Uh, whereas if I got my PhD in criminology and I want to be a professor, maybe I start at 55. So, so we, criminology also has this labor market to compete with. Uh, and so we, we don't develop theory. We publish what we call now the smallish publishable unit, the SPU. Uh, we're just cranking out this stuff that's not contributing in any way to our theoretical understanding. 
Uh, and, and at this point, I think it's a training issue now, too, is, is that people have been mentioning that people just weren't trained in theory since the 80s, and it's gotten really, really bad. Uh, and, and in line with that, the, the methodological statistical tests, since they're easier to do and you can kind of crank up, you know, your publications count for those, uh, it means that you're the type of person who's more likely to get a job. And so because schools want someone who's going to do large research, bring in grant money and this types of stuff because of the way we've cut higher education funding in the United States and quantitative studies are highly amenable to that, getting that kind of grant money and that kind of stuff as well. And so what part of the training shifted so that people were trained really, really heavily in uh, methods and statistics, yet only maybe get one class in theory, and it's a secondary book, a secondary source, you know, where it's like summaries of theories or something. And so it, it's, a, it's a strange place in that way. That, and we've evolved in this kind of interstitial space between uh, a hyper policy field like economics and sociology, which has struggled throughout its existence to have meaningful contributions to policy. I was actually talking to a sociologist last night, and she owned me. Like I was trying to trying to trying to justify my argument, and she owned me. And I and I thought I, I could do good, but I yeah. Like at least sociologists can talk really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that's what my PhD is in is sociology, and. Uh, yeah, because, and actually sociology, and I want to say it was English, English majors. There's the study academically adrift where they were looking at what majors you kind of learn the best uh, critical thinking skills. And sociology was one of the only fields that showed any gain. And, and I think the reason is, is because you're pulling together so many different things in a differentiated society to tell that story or to make that argument or to try to explain something that you, you, it, it forces you to be very eclectic, uh, very good at integrating knowledge sources and those types of things. Uh, so, I, so that might be part of it. Yeah, like the, the way she was putting together her thoughts, her arguments, I felt like a baby. I felt like a, I was like a five-year-old in front of a, I don't know, like a, yeah, like a, like a, like a 40-year-old or something. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Ryan, yeah, yeah. But Ryan, it was fascinating to talk to you. And, and I think we discussed amazing, amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so, and thanks for accepting my invitation. And I would love to have you in the future. Okay, yeah, just let me know whenever. I, I would do that.